Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Five Questions with the CEO, where Ben's CEO, General Joe Vitale, former commander of all United States Special Forces and enforces in 21 countries in the Middle East and Asia, interviews top business leaders, focusing on their stories, strategies, and real-world experiences. Here, we want to know why they are passionate about sharing their talents and insights to assist senior leaders in the national security enterprise as they solve some of our nation's most pressing challenges, and why they are part of a growing number of executives who understand that national security is everyone's business. Welcome to another episode of Five Questions with the CEO of Ben's Podcast, where we talk with our Ben's members from across the nation about their journey and their involvement with Ben's. And joining us today is Atlanta member uh, Tom Noonan. Tom brings cybersecurity and risk expertise, as well as a successful entrepreneurial background to our discussion today. He is the founding partner of Tech Operators and chairman of 10 Holdings. Most recently, Tom was the general manager of the energy management business of Cisco following the acquisition of Jewel X in 2013, uh, where he was a co-founder and CEO. Tom is a serial entrepreneur. He has founded or co-founded nearly a dozen companies, to, to name just a few, uh, Actuation Electronics and LeapFrog Technologies, Endgame Security, a leading provider of software solutions to the U.S. intelligence community and the Department of Defense, and Internet Security Systems, ISS Incorporated, which was acquired by IBM for nearly $2 billion back in 2006. Tom is a graduate of the George Institute of Technology with a degree in mechanical engineering. He is a diehard uh, Yellow Jacket fan, uh, which we'll probably get into at some point in the discussion here today. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. General, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Your management style and your vision have been widely recognized by industry leaders, including Forbes, uh, Business Week, and Fortune. Uh, back in 1999, Ernst & Young recognized you as Entrepreneur of the Year in the Atlanta Magazine and names you as one of the most powerful business leaders, certainly in this region, if not across the nation. Those who know you uh, would likely say that you're a very thoughtful person and a visionary leader who... Uh, repeatedly generates good ideas that result in great success. And I think we know you're a person who values the team around you, you know, gives back to the community, isn't afraid to take risks. So in the world of startups, uh, only uh, a third of the good ideas are triumphant, and yet you founded nearly a dozen successful companies. Can, can you start off by sharing with us uh, some of what gives you the drive and indeed the courage to repeatedly seek out good ideas, create a vision, build a team, and then put that put that idea into action? That's a great opening question. I think as entrepreneurs, we are just wired differently. The rest of the world thinks we're taking on insane amounts of risk with ridiculously low chances of success and certainly zero work-life balance. But being an entrepreneur, you know, a startup is an irrational passion. Entrepreneurship is like a calling. For most of us, it's like a virus that's gotten into our head. We're hardwired for meeting, and I think we just chase the things that set our souls on fire. And I find that as a common trait in successful entrepreneurs. They're driven by this authentic type purpose, um, that North Star that kind of pins down why they do what they do. And I think 
when their work has meaning, it fulfills your soul. And that's certainly true of me. You know, if you love what you're doing, you have a high probability, I think, of being successful. And so I kind of flip the equation around. I say success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. And, you know, when you believe in something, the force of your conviction kind of sparks other people's interests. And you mentioned the team and it motivates them, you know, to help you achieve the vision of the future. And so that passion is a real force multiplier, I think. It inspires those that join you for the journey. You know, it creates the energy to believe in a different vision of the future to me, it's like a drug. I mean, it's why I keep doing it. My wife has forbidden me to start another company. So now I invest um, rather aggressively in early stage founding teams and I live vicariously through them. Um, but, you know, looking back over my career, it's the journey in the battles you fought with the men and women you fought them with that you always remember. And they're the things, you know, they're the things that bring back the fond memories. It's, it's ironic, but when there's an exit, nobody ever remembers what went into their bank account, but they, they will always remember uh, challenges that they faced and the people that, uh, fought those challenges with them. And to me, that's that's just what keeps me going. I actually was listening to a podcast that you did with a good friend of mine, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned in there, I, I think in kind of a response to a, a similar type question was that uh, you, you know you had to you had a need to keep the child inside alive. Right. And I'm interested in hearing your, your thoughts on that. First of all, I come from a big family, five boys and a girl. You know, I had a fantastic childhood growing up in America in the 60s and the 70s, but I was always the curious one. You know, my dad would, you know, get so upset with me because whatever he brought home, a new lawnmower, a new blender, I would take it apart because I was always curious <laughs> about how things worked. Um, and I didn't always get them together. And I I think that's just the way my genome is sequenced. You know, it's why I went to Georgia Tech and became a mechanical engineer, because I figured if I ever wanted to know how things worked, I should become an engineer. And so that's what keeps the child alive in me. The idea always doesn't come from me, General. I, I, I interact with so many brilliant people and many of the companies I've founded. I've founded because I ran in to a dreamer and thought their dream was so compelling, but they had no way to bring it to life. And I think one of the things I've been blessed with as an individual is not just the courage, but the confidence that I know how to bring that to life. It's a formula that I've relied on my entire career, and it's why I've had so much fulfillment in this line of business as opposed to pursuing a career in corporate America or with a with a large company as as an executive as part of a team. I think you kind of 
may be anticipating the, the next question that I might ask you. You've experienced great success, but I'm sure along the way failure as, as well. And I wonder what you would describe as kind of the key ingredients that uh, um, of projects that end up really taking flight and moving off. And, and then conversely, what is it? Uh, are there some ingredients or some elements that you see uh, in, in efforts that don't materialize and actually fail or, or don't achieve the, the desired end state. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you bring it up, so let's talk about it. Failure. I mean, failure and the lessons learned from failure, I think, are actually essential elements of success. Yeah. And entrepreneurship has taught me things about myself that I'm pretty sure I could have never been able to learn in a classroom or working for some uh, large risk-averse corporation. And while entrepreneurship has brought me success beyond my wildest dreams, it's also given me the opportunity to fail. And failure, I think, had, helps develop an inner security and a self-confidence that, you know, you'd you don't really experience in any other way in your life. And society glorifies success and vilifies failure. But I think the many failures I've had through my entrepreneurial journey have taught me things about myself that I could have learned in no other way. I mean, there's more to learn from mistakes than from successes when you look back over it. And understanding, you know, what went wrong, where instincts failed, what internal or external factors or assumptions were responsible um, for taking an enterprise off course. To me, they're all vital lessons in, in business. When I think about the iterative journey of getting product market fit right, of getting the right management team in place, of working through the right design customers and partners and all the things that to me are textbook today. When I work with these young, brilliant entrepreneurs today, what I realize is that after doing this for 40 years and doing it across the entire spectrum from idea to start to pre-product funding to getting the product market fit right, getting the user product fit right, getting the right team on board, scaling, building the right go-to-market approach, taking a company through IPO, ultimately dealing with mergers and acquisitions and or liquidating your own company. The lessons you learn through that are just extraordinary. And it's so fulfilling for me as an old retired guy now you know, to be able to walk in a room with a young, brilliant entrepreneur and just have his jaw hit the table because there's so much wisdom that is developed. And a lot of wisdom comes from what doesn't work. I like to tell these young entrepreneurs there are not too many hard lessons left for me for me to learn. And I love that about the whole innovation culture. Yes, I, I do. How do you develop leaders that are that allow people to learn and fail and learn from that and move forward, I think is a really critical leadership skill. And it's it's difficult in institutions like the military and others to to really adopt that. I used to have a commander 
who worked for me, and he used to say, hey, we're going to test a little, learn a lot. We know we're going to fail on something. We're going to learn a lot of it. We're going to come back. It's going to be sharper the next time around. And uh, that is such an important lesson to to inculcate. Um, I, I want to switch. I want to talk about a little bit of your government service here. And, and uh, you know, in 2002, President Bush uh, appointed you to serve on the National Infrastructure Advisory Council, the NIAC, uh, which is, a you know, kind of a White House homeland defense initiative that protects information systems critical to the nation's infrastructure. And you continued to serve in that capacity under not only under President Bush, but under President Obama and, and then under President Trump. Uh, and it's an extraordinary to have an opportunity to use your talents and experiences to inform and advise a, advise a president uh, making decisions for the whole nation. I, I know our listeners, and I certainly would be really interested to learn more about your efforts as part of that council, but perhaps as importantly, how you manage to stay current in the tech, cybersecurity, and digital forensics space, and then how you kind of see that that out of those areas moving forward. I mean, that's a, a great question because staying current with anything in the technological fields today requires a real discipline and commitment to stay on top of it because it's changing so fast, making great, great leaps ahead as opposed to incremental leaps. You know, one of the things about cyber and digital security, I began my life as a control system engineer for Rockwell Automation. I was a newly minted Georgia Tech graduate and packed up my 1973 Vega, which made, <laughs> made it to Paducah, Kentucky before it broke down. I was en route to Milwaukee, Wisconsin um, to have my first full-time professional job at Rockwell Automation. But I became enamored at a very young age with using computers and computer mm -hmm. intelligence to automate and control things. And so as I began to develop my career and the internet came about, not as a DARPA research project, but as a real commercially viable technology to accelerate commerce and knowledge and all the things that the internet has accelerated you know i became infatuated with the fact that the internet was open and easy to access which is what caused adoption to occur so quickly but with so many new technologies there's an unintended double-edged sword or an unintended consequence which is the fact that anything that's open and easy to access that's being used to conduct commerce, banking, financial transactions, et cetera, is going to draw the criminal element. And so to me, managing security on a network or a computer was no different than an automatic control system that could allow the good and deny the bad. And so from an early age, I've always been intrigued with this concept of thinking about cybersecurity as a cyber control system, no different than an automatic control system that you would use to control a robot, uh, an automated material handling system, or an automated process control system. There are inputs, there's program logic, and there are outputs. And if the input is bad, the program logic should say it's bad and deny it. For the last 
40 years, I have been intrigued with cybersecurity for that very reason. And I think as we look at the landscape, innovative technology is bringing wonderful benefits to mankind, but they're also unintended consequences. I mean, just think of the unintended consequences of cyber. Cyber threats are getting more serious with greater potential to do serious long-term expensive damage because our entire society is depending on it. And now the bad guys are using AI-generated malware and threat agents that are increasingly sophisticated and wreaking havoc on traditional security controls. Now the good guys are using AI-generated control systems to combat their intelligent malware and threat agents. I see no natural ceiling to the size of the cybersecurity yeah. market. Yeah. And it's why it's an area I continue to pursue. It's a really interesting perspective on what is a critical problem. So like you, I grew up in a big family and I'm uh, number six of six boys. And my oldest brother actually lived in Atlanta for a while. And uh, one time, and this was the 60s, when he came back, he brought me a present. And the present was a Georgia Tech sweatshirt. Uh, of course, I was a kid running around the block in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, so I had no, I'd, no idea what, uh, what Georgia Tech meant or what, what it was it as a, as a young 10-year-old uh, at the time, but I wore the T-shirt out till, till I grew out of it. You, of course, are a graduate of, uh, of Georgia Tech, and I think there's probably a number of Georgia Tech uh, fans and alum that are probably going to be listening to us today, and you're a member of the Georgia Tech Hall of Fame, and uh uh, you were part of the uh, one of the most uh, most recent uh, search committee to to find a new uh, president for uh, Georgia Tech, and of course that that's strategically significant because it's driving the direction of the the institution. Uh, I wonder if you can share with us why you believe it's important to remain grounded and connected to where you came from, especially as you look at it in terms of your own professional uh, success. I think it goes back to the way I was raised. My parents raised us as a family. Uh, they raised us to love each other, despite the number of fights that occurred between <laughs> me and my brothers. They were all body blows, <laughs> no, no mortal, no mortal wounds. But um, I know a lot of people that have achieved uncommon success that have remained pretty normal. I, I, I try to consider myself that way. And I know that success ultimately changes people. My father took me to the Georgia Tech basketball and football games as a kid. Um, I was a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout. I actually worked to help people find their seats in the Georgia Tech Stadium in the early 70s. By the way, that Georgia Tech sweatshirt down here, we'd call that high fashion. <laughs> but... I think it comes from just from inside and the way you're raised. My mom used to always tell me, love God, serve the king, and try like heck to get through every day. We had a, a very simple middle-class upbringing. We went to church. We went to school. When we got in trouble, we got the belt, and we learned that it was probably not a good idea to cross that line again or we'd get the belt again, but I wouldn't change a thing. The last question, and this question we ask every one of our members we bring on the podcast series here is, what brought you to Benz, and 
Uh, what's what's made you decide to share your talents and insights to help address some of the nation's most pressing national security issues? The first thing that brought me to Ben's was because I love America and I strongly believe uh, in the vision our founding fathers had for this great nation and the right to life, liberty, and happiness and the freedoms that we enjoy here. Um, we have our challenges, but I think we are still the uh, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. I felt like I, through the you know grace of God and the uh, good fortune I had in being an early pioneer of the cyber business, had a both a skill and a passion for something that I thought was going to be very very important for not just national security but for the nation. Um, because national security without economic security uh, is a difficult equation to solve. Exactly. And so being at the forefront of cyber threat and vulnerability, intelligence and the innovation needed to address that threat and to set the foundation for the nation on a whole new horizon, the cyber horizon, I, f I almost felt obligated, uh, even though it was natural for me when General Herney uh, rung me up from Washington and said, you know, I, w I would love to have a chat with you. I don't know, this is back in the 90s. I would love to have a chat with you about, you know, contributing your time and talent um, to this worthwhile effort. So, you know, here I am 25 years later. Uh, I still love America. I still strongly believe in her vision. And I am still committed to contributing in any way I can on this unique dimension of cyber um, that I've been blessed to have the good fortune um, to operate in that arena, you know, for most of my career. And I think that's what drew me to Ben's. That's uh, that's great, Tom. Thanks uh, thanks so much. We're so lucky to be able to count you among our distinguished members. So thank you very much. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. And I've certainly enjoyed the discussion. And I think we covered a pretty good array of, uh, of topics here from your experience to uh, the cyber business to a little bit on leadership and a little bit on what kind of got you there. So I really appreciate you taking some time to, to talk with us today. Thanks. Thanks so much. My pleasure, General. Thank you for having me, and, and please don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of assistance. Thanks. And for our listeners, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today. We've been talking with Atlanta member Tom Noonan coming at you with another episode soon. Mm -hmm.